Right, let's get started. All right, look, we need to get on with this. I know we need to around today. I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> uh, let me pour the coffee. It sounds like me going for a wee. You were going for a wee. <laughs> we don't really have coffee. I dreamt about weeing in my bedroom last night. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. I dreamt that I was so desperate to go to the toilet that I couldn't make it to the toilet, which is like two metres away from my bedroom right. door. So instead I climbed onto the windowsill and weed all over the windowsill. And yeah. have you? No. Because I you checked. know that, because actually dreaming about weeing is often the fact that you are actually weeing. Yeah. Because people who dream about wet in the bed are often wet in the bed. Yeah, but I mean, I often dream about weeing and I don't often wet myself. <laughs> Often, no. I like I like the fact that you use often. No, no I, have, I know I don't. I, have, I don't. I mean, I must have wet myself at some point, but I don't think I. I don't remember doing it as an adult. Really? Yeah. To be quite honest, I don't think I have. You I've shit that. myself many times. Oh, yeah, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so should we start? We should start. Okay. So, hello. Hello. That's good to see you. Good to see you too. What episode are we? On? Uh. Episode 11. Episode 11. Is it? Uh, was I right? You were right. Episode 11, yeah. Episode 11, which is also episode season 2, episode 3, right? I don't even know anymore. Isn't it 4? Isn't this the 4th one? Might be the 4th one, actually. So, do we have any uh, feedback statistics on our last pod? Statistics are very positive. You know that I obsess endlessly about the amount of people that are listening to our podcast, whereas you don't care at all. Uh, that's n- that's not fair. That wasn't that wasn't intended as an insult, actually. I do care, in some but ways, just was... not as much as you. Right. So, in some ways, I'm being self-deprecating because I concern I'm concerned about whether enough people are listening to the podcast or not. You don't really pay any attention to it. But the the remarkable statistic this week is that our listening figures went up by twenty five percent this week. Did we do a boost? We did not do a boost. Oh, maybe I have no answer. Uh, I mean, maybe it was a bit shorter than the one before. So people thought, people oh, it's maybe... a shorter one. So maybe that could be it. it, could it be. Had there been changes in our locations? No, but we still don't know who our Slovenian listener is. I think we guessed, didn't we? Well, uh, we guessed, but that person has not revealed whether or not it's true. So maybe they've stopped listening. That's always a danger. Yeah. So maybe they don't want to be identified. Maybe. So Garrett Norton's been in touch. Oh, hello, Garrett. Hi, Garrett. It's been a while since we heard from Garrett. Uh, he asked the question, do you think it's feasible or perhaps likely that China is inaccurately reporting true numbers regarding those affected by the Mexican beer virus? The Mexican beer virus. Yeah, you see, I like what he's done there, because what he's done is he's begun by asking what ostensibly seems a sensible question, suggesting he's engaging with the serious topics that we are discussing, uh, but leading us into his joke that coronavirus sounds like corona, which is a Mexican beer. It is. Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, I mean, we haven't had a joke from Graham Bagley for a while. So there we are. Good Actually, joke. that's not true. 
we have had a joke from Graham Backley. We had a joke from Graham Backley last week. I chose not to publish it. It was. It might have got us into trouble. Oh, one of those ones. One of those ones. But it was a good joke, Graham. So if you're listening, and I know you are, we liked it. I say we liked it. I didn't share it with Nick. I liked it. Why do you not share it with me? Do you, should I share it with you now? I mean, I could, I'll cut it out. Go on, then. All right. Uh, let me find what you said. Hold on. Okay, so we've, I will have edited that joke out now, so okay. everyone else won't know what it was. But it was funny, Graham. It made us laugh. Yes, it did. <laughs> it was a good one. We'd better, we'd better crack on. Critique of the yeah. week. Critique of the week. Or I mean, what's been going on in the Asia Pacific this week? Hey. Oh, well, um, only one place to start, isn't there really? It is. Um, how do we want to tackle this? Because there's, so there's little point in us producing a podcast that just talks about the statistics and outlines some of the responses that we've had over the coronavirus and discusses how serious it is. Although I'm sure we'll do a little bit of that. Because that is just everywhere, and I don't think we'll really be adding anything to the conversation if we do that. But maybe there are some aspects we'd like to pick out. Um, yeah, so I, I, there's a few things actually on this that I do want to discuss. Things that really kind of around many of the big themes that we've seen coming out of this. I do think it is important that we start to unpack it a little bit. And start to look at it in perhaps a kind of a different way than which we discussed it last week. Um, was some of the timelines on this really that the first known infection of this was at December 2019 at the end of December um this began to have alarms particular around certain Wuhan medical circles um China informed the WHO on the 31st of December which is where we get that figure from for the 31st of December but many of the citizens within China were still kept in the dark the actual interesting thing was that the Wuhan mayor was told authorized not to discuss this uh, so he wasn't able to just talk about this and then we saw the city go on lockdown on the 23rd of january so i kind of want us to perhaps maybe have a conversation around some of those things so my my feeling would be that the time to have acted really would have been on the alarm bells ringing amongst medical circles um, and I think this actually has a much wider kind of question that I have is the way in which that this is being mediated I do think that there is um, a hijack of the debate largely by non-public health officials um, and so if at the end of December, which is really where the medical alarm bells was, I mean, what was really particularly clear is that, yes, this was the moment that China informed the WHO, but it wasn't the moment that it notified its citizens. And I think that's a particularly interesting thing. What they did seemingly act on is the whistleblower. So when you talk about the whistleblower, you're talking about the doctor, Li Wenliang. Yeah, you? I mean, it was actually eight doctors. But the, so the, the main key one was, yeah, you're right. The the reason I say that now is because, uh, obviously, we're recording this, so this will be slightly older news at this point, but actually this is breaking news right now. Right. That is Li Wenliang, who was the one of, as you say, one of the doctors of the whistleblower. He's been widely praised now, but was initially uh, in trouble with the authorities and yeah. uh, forced to sign a contract agreeing that he would cease spreading rumours. He then contracted coronavirus. Yes. He's now died. Um, I didn't know this. This is actually it's new. Yeah, this, this news is, is coming out because it, because what out. came out was that it was him amongst eight frontline doctors were 
were informed, the police had informed them that they had gone through a certain education, they had been criticised, and they had been told to cease all rumour-mongering. Um, so I just think it's kind of interesting in these things. And actually, I have a question from this before we move on to some of the other areas of this discussion, is whether or not that you think that this is raising particular concerns with regards to Xi's overall legitimacy, whether or not that his power is beginning to be put into question. I mean, it, this is one of a series of issues that have kind of undermined some of his authority. So we know the situation with Hong Kong, which we've talked about quite regularly. We had the whole thing around the election in Taiwan. Um, and it hasn't obviously gone in a way in which it was it was particularly hoped on the Chinese perspective. Um, and now you've got this and whether or not that these things collectively is actually going to start to undermine a lot of his authority. Well, um, let me answer that question. Yeah. Uh, there th well, I understand why you're making the connection. They're three quite different cases. Hong Kong, to some extent, yes, poses something of a threat to Xi, depending on how how the level of response was going to go. In many ways, the coronavirus outbreak has sort of intervened there because the impact on Hong Kong has been pretty dramatic, and so much of so much of Hong Kong is now closed down. They uh, they haven't quite completely closed the border with the mainland, but it's heading in that sort of direction. So, what's happening in Hong Kong has obviously been impacted by this. But yes, to some extent, that has questions about his legitimacy. I, I don't so much agree with the Taiwan election because it. With you, your question really is about domestic legitimacy in mainland China, and the result of the Taiwan election won't undermine Xi's legitimacy within mainland China. It might undermine the perception of Xi's ability to influence things that matter and matter domestically in China, but that perception outside of China. But I, I'm not sure I can see a linkage between the failure to influence an election which they weren't overtly trying to influence. I accept covertly they definitely were, but overtly there is no statement from Xi. There's no overt linkage between Xi Jinping and the attempt to influence the Taiwan election for all sorts of obvious reasons. So I, I don't see any connection there with the undermining. When it comes to the coronavirus itself, the potential is certainly there. Where we're at right now with coronavirus is so much more serious than the last time you and I recorded one of these pods. And it's so much more widespread in China and the, the conditions in China are so much more severe for people in terms of uh, whole cities being locked down. That The potential is certainly there, but there's a risk that when you are in a moment, you overemphasize its importance. And it's I guess that's my long-winded way of saying it's way too early to be making those sorts of assessments. Xi Jinping's grip on power in China is, has been pretty iron-fisted up until very, very recently. And so the idea that within a couple of weeks of what is clearly a very serious and important medical situation, the idea that that's already undermined, I, I think... It's we I, we can't we can't go there yet. We can't go there no. yet. Okay, I mean, obviously, I let me just obviously reiterate the point within my question was whether or not it, it, it is the beginning, not currently, and but there are a series of issues. And obviously, one of them, if we could, obviously, our conversation here is on the virus. Um, a, a really key thing that was coming out of this, and this will lead us into the next section that we wanted to talk about in this. Uh, but there is a there is obviously a massive increase in panic. Um, this is not both just within China, but also without. And there, I think that panic is almost a kind of a threefold panic. Quite one, 
would be the fact that there are there is no area currently within China that doesn't have this infection, right? Yes. Um, and of course, a massive area of concern would, of course, be in Xinjiang, where you obviously have concentrations of people within particular camps um, that are reportedly numbered within their millions. And we, we know, we know how disease spreads. Um, we've seen this with other cases, smallpox, TB, that these things spread much quicker in people who are living in poor conditions in overcrowded places. So, of course, it's not something of which we are aware of that it is spreading. But if if we were to see a significant death toll within these camps due to this virus, then that would be a major cause of panic. Just, uh, just on that, I mean, there's a part of me, I know you're not asking me to do this, but there's a part of me that would feel a bit uncomfortable about speculating on large numbers of deaths that haven't happened yet in particular camps in Xinjiang in the future. So uh, I know you're not asking me to do that. If that situation were to occur, I mean, is that something that's going to be widespread reported? No, I mean, this is the, I mean, one, that is a point, I mean, but there are ways in which that needs, I mean, this is where it comes down in my, my list of things, points I wanted to make. Um, no, you're right. I mean, that's a sort of an area where the reporting could well be leaked. We may have once again actions against whistleblowers. Um, but, Another area I think hasn't happened, but could have the potential to see a significant development would be the outbreak of this within poorer countries. At the moment, we are finding this largely being concentrated in countries that have a system that can, can essentially handle much of what is, what is going on. I mean, today we have a, 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 another case within the UK, but the key thing here obviously is that we've have people who have the case but no one has caught it from within right these are all is that not the case breaking news again sorry to do this to you i've got it on my phone right now the third person to get it in the uk or the third case in the uk did not catch it inside china okay so then i take them I in that would be an area of development so this yeah. is actually i think quite a critical thing here um the outbreak in poorer countries um i think is something of which that we do need to pay particular attention to. Um, and the other third one is the the slowdown on the economy, the economic slowdown that could result from this could see um, potential possibilities of financial crises. Um, and I, I, I know that you're, you're not wanting, obviously, a conversation on on things that have yet to happen, but panic is, tends to form out of things of not happening rather than things that are happening. I do think that one of the key differences, say, within the panic that is coming out of this particular virus in comparison to, say, SARS, is the fact that this is happening in a period of information anarchy, right? I mean, what we get now today in terms of spread of misinformation, fake news these are aspects that we didn't necessarily see as much in 2002 so actually this is occurring at a very hostile period in the way in which that information is being spreaded and i think this raises those issues and concerns of panic particularly about things that are not necessarily happening there's some really interesting points in that and i don't disagree with a lot of what you say 
I would question whether I like the phrase. Is it your phrase? Information anarchy. I must have read it somewhere. It's it's, it's a good phrase. I like it. Yeah. Um, I would question whether that situation is complete. That that description is completely accurate of the situation in China. Um, I'm necessarily in China, but it's happening without. I mean, that's linking to our point uh, on racism, right? Yeah, which we'll, we'll come yeah. on to. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned about the economic impact. Um, quite interesting this week has been has been the reopening of the Chinese stock markets. And initially we saw pretty sharp falls on the Shanghai Stock Exchange. And so uh, some uh, some indexes fell by like 10% in a single day, which is actually the maximum they're allowed to fall. And that's one of the things that tells you that people often talk about China as it's now just a capitalist state. It's not an entirely capitalist state. It doesn't have an entirely free market. And things like controls on the stock exchange are things that tell you it's, it's a little bit different. And... Um, but there's, the Chinese government has intervened in the stock market and sort of lent on stockbrokers not to sell certain stocks so that we don't get these massive crashes. What that tells you is that, yes, there's going to be there's clearly going to be an economic Im- impact. The figure that I saw this week was that it was going to, at, at this moment, you're looking at probably a 1% reduction in economic growth in China this year. There's one percentage point yeah. reduction, yeah, which is a fairly significant chunk of the expected economic growth. And then... Uh, that could well it could well get even worse. But China has so much capital behind it, both actual financial capital, yeah. but also powers and abilities to intervene in particular aspects of the economy to mitigate against these, not necessarily to prevent economic contraction or uh, these, yeah, to mitigate against this. So again, it's just it's just too early to be saying that this is something, even that this is the start of something like this. It depends on how this all develops. It depends on how quickly this can be got under control. I did want to go back to one of the points you made right at the start um, when we talked about the, the doctor, uh, Dr. Lee Wenliao, who has yeah. just died. Um, and I mean, I think uh, we won't be the only ones who are saying this, but I think we should pay tribute to a sure. man like that, who at great personal risk to himself was he was a whistleblower in a state where there's great personal risk for doing that. He was trying to fight against, not fight against the system, I mean, he wasn't trying to lead some sort of revolution, but he was trying to act counter to what the system tells him to do. Yeah. Because as a doctor, he knew that was in the best interest of his patients, of his colleagues, of his countrymen and of the wider world. That's what he tried to do. And had those in political power in Hubei listened to him instead of trying to stamp on him and stop spreading rumours, then we would not be in the situation that we're in right now. And no. we, by we, I mean the world. Yeah. Uh, and, and obviously, we, we're talking about this in almost... Well, we're talking about the situation impacting us here in the UK. We have three cases at this moment in recording. Yeah. I mean, the impact on China, obviously, is, is astronomically Absolutely. greater than that. And that could have been severely limited had the system not been set up to shut people down from raising any sorts of question against authority. And I guess what I'm trying to say is I would very much hope that one of the things that might, and I emphasise might, come out of this, would be a greater awareness within that party-state system that the risks of conducting politics in those ways are so great that they have to change. Yeah. 
I'm not suggesting that we suddenly should be ushering in multi-party democracy in China as a result of this. I'm not. But that silencing of people who speak against what is deemed to be in the interests of social harmony, that needs to stop because it creates situations like this. And that is a threat to the very system that has created it. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't think it's necessarily just a product of authoritarian governments, but it's also something we see within democratic institutes with the silencing of whistleblowers. You know, Edward Snowden would be a, would be a very key, key figure within this. Um, and so, I mean, this is something that's happening within the periods of we live in anyway. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think greater respect and at least acknowledging what he had done, I think, is very, very important. On the point of your economic slowdown, I just want to kind of perhaps very briefly go back onto that before we move onto the wider, some other issues within within this um, subject. Um, obviously, the key thing here is that in many ways, we're seeing a sacrifice of the city, right? Um, Wuhan is a very important trading port. It's going to, and it's bound to have, not just, you know, you, I mean, when you were talking, you were talking about the kind of the effects on the stock exchange and, and capital and stuff like that. But here I'm actually talking about kind of goods. There's a supply chain. There is an interruption in a supply chain that would have or has the potential to have an effect upon economies elsewhere. I wasn't just meaning this. I mean, I was using the stock exchange as this example of how the government can intervene to mitigate certain impacts. But I do take your point. Okay, thank you. And thank you for your correction. You also mentioned about concentration of people and that you were in particular talking about uh, in camps in Xinjiang. Yeah. But also, um, I showed you a, I showed you a video that was sent to me by a member of my family yeah. who lived in China. With the queue. With the queue. Um, and this is one of the things. So that, I mean, the queue was pretty breathtaking, wasn't it? I mean, uh, you don't see queues like that kind of anywhere. And it was just snaked round and round blocks. It was just incredible. And these people were queuing for face masks, right? So obviously to prevent the spread. But the clearest risk for spreading this illness is by having large numbers of people congregating in the same place. So what you'd suddenly got is, I mean, there were literally hundreds of people in that queue, right? It may have been as many as a thousand people standing in a queue. So you've suddenly got them all in one place breathing all over each other because they haven't yet got their face masks in the hope of getting a face mask that isn't really that effective. So the key thing with the face mask is to stop you from spreading it. Yes. Right? Um, and so the whole point of if you having it to stop you from spreading it, you are now in the queue that you're compromising the people around you. But it's again, it boils down to this concept of panic, mm. right? Um, and this idea somehow within the information that's being spread is this idea that you need the face mask. Have you seen the thing about uh, the city of Dali? So, you know, you know the city, it's yeah. more of a town, isn't it? Dali yeah. is in the northwest of Yunnan province. Right. And uh, it, it, <laughs> it apparently stole a delivery of face masks that were supposed to be heading to Chongqing. And so it's like, <laughs> and then they've distributed, they, and they sort of, the city authorities have said, there's nothing we can do about that now. They've already been distributed. Sorry, Chongqing. Yeah, it's a mildly amusing illustration of the point that you've just made. I mean, that's, yeah. it's, that's about panic, about, oh, we better protect these people and we'll look after our people. But ultimately, those face masks are not really going to protect them very well at no. all. I don't know if we should be offering medical advice, actually. Uh, Other things I think great. we should mention, I would like to mention about 
the UK's response, because there are a couple of things that I think I'd like to touch on. The first is, so the UK chartered a plane and flew home uh, around just less than 100 people a few days ago. Yeah. And there was a second plane being chartered. I'm not sure if it's taken off yet or not. I haven't looked. But the uh, and those were specifically from Wuhan. But the instruction went out, I think, yesterday. We're recording this on Thursday the 6th. I'm pretty sure the instruction was yesterday. Perhaps it was the day before. I, I, I don't know. It's been one of those weeks. That all British people are being encouraged to leave China, if at all possible. I mean, we're talking about how many British people are there in China? I genuinely don't know the answer to that question. I don't know. British uh, people living in China, 30,000, something like that? Let me do something. Yeah, or more. It's a big place. Yeah, so you're looking at over 30,000 people living in China. British people. <laughs> yeah, okay. people living in China. Over 30,000 <laughs> British people living in China, and they're all being encouraged to leave, if at all possible. Now, I, again, I want to be careful that I'm not sort of trying to offer advice in an area that I'm obviously not an expert in, but it does seem counter to everything that China is trying to achieve, which is limiting travel, to say there's 30,000 people who need to sort of get out, if at all possible. And what sort of plans are in place? It's, I, I don't know. It's, um, it seems like an odd response from Britain That's to a... be saying that at this point. That's a very significant number to be quarantined here on their return. Well, they wouldn't be quarantined. There's no way they would be quarantined because we don't have the facilities to quarantine that number of people. Either way. <laughs> okay, well, that settled that then. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to say was, did you see that thing with Boris Johnson's dad this morning? No. no this, is, this is gold. So, uh, Boris Johnson's dad... Stanley Johnson, who you may recall from the TV series I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Yes, for those people who are not British, our Prime Minister's dad was on a reality TV show. We are a simple tribute act to the United States. Anyway, Stanley Johnson is an environmental campaigner, and he met with uh, Liu Xiaoming, the Chinese ambassador to the UK, uh, a day or two ago. And it seemingly... In that meeting, Liu Xiaoming expressed to Stanley Johnson that he was quite disappointed, or the Chinese were quite disappointed, that they'd not had any kind of personal message from Boris Johnson to Xi Jinping, expressing solidarity or support or sympathy for what's happening with the coronavirus. And so Stanley Johnson said he would pass this message on. So there's a number of really interesting things here. One is that Stanley Johnson should not be conducting any kind of diplomacy for the UK. He has no official position whatsoever. Now, he and the British government have since said they absolutely wasn't acting in that capacity. And you know, the Chinese ambassador, I mean, he's, he's acting on behalf of China. And it's not unreasonable that he would think, I'm meeting with the Prime Minister's dad. I can have a chat about some of the things I would like the British Prime Minister to know. It seems like a reasonable way of getting a message through. Um, but... He, you can also see why Liu Xiaoming might think that Stanley Johnson is there actually representing Boris Johnson when he really, really shouldn't be. So there's a question there, which is not necessarily related to the Asia-Pacific, just related to me ranting about British politics. Um, but uh, the best part about this story is that Stanley Johnson then sent an email to Boris Johnson and to a number of other people in the British government to let them know this and CC'd in a number of people, including, by accident, a BBC journalist. Oops. <laughs> That's how we know. (laughs) 
Whoa. Keep going, because you need to make the link to racism. Yeah, so, uh, well, anyway, speaking of uh, Boris Johnson, let's talk about racism in the UK. <laughs> nice. Well that, done, you. That's right. a smooth link. I'm racism. Keep, I'm keeping that in. I didn't accuse him outright of being racist. No, you racist. didn't. You're not, you're not liable. Just hinted at it. Yeah. But I'll say it. No, will I say it? No, you won't. I'm going to say it, and I'll decide later whether it stays in or not. Say it. Boris Johnson is a racist. Okay. Do you feel better? Not really. Right. So I, I, there's actually quite a lot of this I, I, I want to kind of unpack with you. Okay. Right? Um, because I think it's kind of an interesting thing, and I think... I don't know whether... I, it's, it's about how to kind of articulate this. Out. Um, so it was in around the election... The, the American, no, no, no. The the U.S. elections around 2016, and there was a, the build up to that. There was an article I think came out um, from Paul Wong um, about Asian Americans as being the silent minority. This idea that they're kind of nondescript and they just fit in. So when you talk about minority and ethnic groups within the case of the United States, it's often African American and Latinas, and somehow within that, Asian Americans are a, a silent minority. And in certain cases, we've seen this being being almost labelled as being a model minority, this idea that they seemingly do well at school and stuff like that. So there's kind of stereotypes around them, but it's almost as if it's model or positive stereotyping. And and some of the kind of situations that we've seen, so obviously we're getting individual stories that are coming from around the globe of, of, of cases of just, you know, outright racist attacks towards the Chinese on the basis of the coronavirus. And there was a case recently of the woman who was just wearing a face mask sat on one of the brown steps of, you know, the buildings in New York and then was suddenly beaten up and, you know, words of, you know, being diseased and stuff like that was being, was being covered out. And I don't know whether or not, so I want, I want us to talk about race and I want us to talk about this, but I want us to talk about whether or not that in this, like, way of describing Asian Americans as being this kind of silent minority, this modern minority, where really we're kind of getting to a point and we're signalling an end to kind of that kind of description, an actual fact that this goes somehow beyond this virus, that there has been like this maybe beneath the surface a growing animosity towards particularly um the Chinese in the sense of whether we see this through university campuses. There have been a number of articles that talk about, you know, the internationalizations of university campuses being predominantly Chinese and whether or not, you know, there was that article that was a few, maybe a year or so ago from uh, the University of Sydney that was talking about this creating enclaves of of Chinese and whether that's actually being detrimental to internationalization and actual fact they need to be much more widespread and whether or not that this is actually beginning to kind of filter into this that actually is something that was bubbling and it's now reached the surface so I want to be careful how I answer that question because uh, it, it's, a, it's an interesting point and it's a very serious one my my view of racism is that it's kind of ever-present um, and there are different groups who become the primary target at different times. But the underlying, the underlying structures behind that are usually broadly the same. Um, that it's, uh, it, it's about scapegoating a particular minority 
to blame them for the things that are wrong with society, mm -hmm. usually encouraged or facilitated by um, another class in society for whom divide and rule is is in their interests. We've had that here in the UK. In the past, it's been the Irish. Uh, later on, it's been uh, West Indians. Uh, we had South Asians targeted. More recently, it's been the Muslims, with sarcastic air quotes, because, yeah. you know, because how they're just yeah. sort of, yeah, whatever that means, they're grouped all together. Um, and so, I mean, we are now seeing over the, I mean, the last week or so, we've seen reports of this here in the UK about, uh, so I was listening to an interview with uh, Jenny Wong the, from the Chinese Cultural Centre in Manchester, and she was talking about just school children, children being marginalised at school and being ostracised by other children because they've been told by their parents to stay away from the Chinese kids because they've got coronavirus, which is obviously ridiculous. And anyone who's even paid a passing interest in the story doesn't think that can possibly be true. And it's it's just that the whole idea of division and otherness and white Englishness being threatened by others, it, it's, it's, that's what's coming out. So... The reason I went sort of round the houses to answer your question is because you asked about is this a specific thing about East Asians or you mean you were mainly focusing on the Chinese? So is this something that's been bubbling away underneath the surface? And my answer to that is sort of yes and no. It is bubbling away there and there are uh, there are reasons why the Chinese community or East Asians more generally who are just quite often simply defined as the Chinese. There's reasons why that community is now being targeted and it's a lot to do with geopolitics and to do with global economics um, and patterns of migration. But the underlying structures of racism in societies I don't think they're any different. Is that? No, I mean I I agree with you um, fully I think in your analysis of that about how structures of racism works I think you, you know, you're spot on. Um, it's just that because we know that there are particular cases, as I said, prior to the virus, where we were starting to see Chinese people being singled out for forms of racism that perhaps we weren't seeing two or three years earlier. And a lot of that's been centred on numbers in migration, yeah. and, and that's largely to do with um, that, that's largely to do with international students, um, and that somehow the international student position removes a position for a home student which you know we know is absolutely nonsense which, which we know actually pays for a home student to go to university yeah. yeah so um so so those sort of patterns and then of course we've seen um within our uh location where student accommodation um is being largely taken up by uh, international students this is being seen as that rather than the building of affordable housing for the local population it's somehow that is all interconnected that you know that these buildings are being built for international students rather than being built for the local population and so there is a being a growing animosity and whether or not so the, the kind of my feeling was is that this 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 is that moment of which this is the the crux of which it can now start to be filtered out. But of course, the issue is that it goes beyond the Chinese community, but into a, a, an East Asian community, which carries its race, you know, its own levels of racism anyway. Yeah. One of the things that's come out this over the last few days in this conversation has been about uh, specifically to do with 
comments about Chinese people is about where the coronavirus came from. And so there's, I mean, I've seen some fairly distasteful memes doing the rounds on social media about people eating bat soup and so on. And it's the it's the weirdness of Chinese food and the weirdness that Chinese people have. In the, and that's why this, uh, that's why this, I, I want to be careful how I put this, but there, no, there, I mean, is, there, there is yeah. a point that I want to make here. Um, and so part of this discussion has been about um, Chinese people are being targeted in this way. And yet we shouldn't actually be focusing on those sorts of things and talking about the weirdness of live animal markets in China, because this actually, this is nothing to do with that. The China, the virus could have come from anywhere. But, and here's what we need to be able to say this. The truth, yes, the virus could have come from anywhere, but it's more likely in places where you have large numbers of a massive variety of animals kept in close proximity and poor hygiene conditions where they're also being slaughtered and are coming into close contacts with human beings. That's where it's much more likely to happen. We need to be able to say that sort of thing is problematic. The Chinese government themselves have said that's problematic. That market that is currently being uh, identified as the source of this virus is illegal under Chinese law because of these reasons. So we need to be able to say that sort of thing, we need to think about it. It needs, We need to change the way that's done. But we need to be able to say that without resorting to one-dimensional racist stereotypes and it's we have to be careful when people like me need to be careful that i can say something like that i need to be able to say it but i don't want to give the fuel to the petty and aggressive racists who will use that as just a way to pick on east asians which sure is happening sure and i think one of the biggest problems here is this the stereotypes around things that get eaten Right. Um, and I, I think that that is, I think, but you, I mean, you, your point is absolutely right. I mean, y- yes, it could happen anywhere, but it's, it, it's more than one variable, isn't it? Yeah. So the idea of this is happening in a place where, where you, you described in terms of the conditions within a marketplace, but then this is then further exacerbated amongst, um, populations that live in close proximity. Um, so, you know, the, the, obviously there are, you know, unsanitary marketplaces across the world. But, you know, some of these unsanitary marketplaces are within locations that um, have less of a population density, right? So... Preston, the, for example. Preston, <laughs> Preston, for example, but yes. I'll do the joke, even if you haven't got the balls to. <laughs> um, I, I'm thinking, we've talked for quite a while about this, uh, and that's understandable. I'm wondering if we've even got time to do that other story. Do you want to touch on that story quickly, or should we move straight to our oddity? Why don't we hold off on the other story? Maybe should we just give it a like pay lip service to it because it has just happened, um, and then we come back to it maybe next week in its fuller detail. What do you think? So, um, so we we do have another story, but let's bring that up next week. I, I, it would be very interesting for us to observe some. Uh, some developments on that so so for those who are really keen and interested in what that might be just listen to next week's wow a cliffhanger that's the sort of thing that's been missing from this pod for such a long time it's a great story (laughs) you won't want to miss this (laughs) (laughs) so oddity you have an oddity and i honestly this is the truth for all our listeners i do not know what this is yes i have an oddity it's nice to end uh what's been a fairly serious pod, I think, with uh, something that's a little bit more frivolous. 
So the word frivolous always makes me want to go, ooh, I don't know why. I'm leaving that in. No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm there's, no, there's nothing you can do to stop me. <laughs> so, uh, my oddity is about, this is actually refers to a football match that took place last July. And I know so, what you're thinking. No, that doesn't new. sound like news, Ed, but there's been a court case Olds. about that. It's not olds, it's news. Because there's been a court case about that match. So I remember this happening at the time. So as you well know, during the summer months, um, European football teams tend to, the big European football teams tend to go off on tours to lucrative markets, uh, to exploit their fame, uh, in their, so they're ostensibly pre-season tours to improve the players' fitness, but really they're about making money out of massive markets. Uh, you often get teams going to, uh, to the United States, to Australia, to South Africa. Um, and, uh, but in recent years, more and more going out to East Asia. And we see a lot going to China and also to Japan. Um, where the 57 year old is playing. He's 53. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, last year, Juventus, you know, one, one of the biggest teams in the world, they went to South Korea. And, um, obviously, you probably know that, uh, Juventus's most famous player is Cristiano Ronaldo. Yes. Um, absolute global superstar. Um, as in many countries, he has a very significant following in South Korea. And he was used as the face to promote this game. The tickets for this game were 71,001, which is about 45 pounds. Hmm. So not that much, but I mean, not, not cheap for no. a pre-season friendly. So obviously a number of fans bought tickets on the basis they wanted to see Ronaldo play. And he didn't play. And he sat on the substitutes bench for the entire game. I was right. Yeah. He did not play. And actually, a promise was made that he would play at least 45 minutes. It wasn't like they just sort of used his face. They actually said he'll be playing at least 45 minutes. And he didn't, he didn't play. Two fans have sued the organisers of this game, uh, for, not only for the cost of their tickets, but for, and I quote, the mental anguish caused by being promised that they would see Ronaldo play and then not being it. Yeah, so they claimed they were suffering from mental anguish, which, I mean, I sort of think is somewhat over-egging the pudding. They have won their case. Are you kidding? No, it's all true. And they have... Uh, so they've been awarded their 71,001 ticket prize back right. and an additional 300,001, which is nearly £200, for the mental anguish. Are you kidding me? Because this raises so many issues legally. It raises a lot of issues, considering that the match had 65,000 people at it. That's one very important one. But, but the other the one is how do you measure mental... I mean, because I mean, this has this has legal consequences that go way beyond. Well, only in South uh, Korea. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah, obviously. But I mean, oh, I feel like this because of my company didn't let me go on a particular trip. I have mental anguish. There is now a legal process from which that, that can be followed. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Yeah. I, I, I guess it's to do with, yeah. I mean, where you've got a legally binding contract that involved the changing hands of money and a promise that somebody would receive a particular thing. Yeah. It's not, it's no longer as simple as saying, yeah, you can have your money back. It is, yeah. You've, you've created a mental anguish. Yeah. Wow. So apparently there are a further 87 people who are also requesting similars. I would imagine there'll be a lot more now. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So, um. Wow. That is a, that's a really interesting one. So that that's my oddity. 
Oh, that, that's a good one. Yeah. Right I quite liked it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you ever seen Cristiano Ronaldo play? No, of course not. I don't support large football clubs. No, that's true. Yeah, you, know, you support Southampton. Um, anything else we want to want to say? I mean, what time do we have to leave soon? Right, we have to leave in a couple of minutes' time. Yeah, because we, ironically, we're off to play football, aren't we? Yeah. Before we finish, uh, I would like to send out a cryptic message to uh, one of our keen listeners. I know she's listening. Uh, she sent me an email today. And I would just like to say thank you very much for that email. You know who you are. And uh, I appreciate it. Right, so right. Shall, we, um, shall we go off and play football? Yes. Well, this has been fun. Let's do it again sometime. We just might. <laughs>